Welcome. I'm Michael McDonnell. I am the cybersecurity librarian. Thank you for joining us on another Morrow and Mike. This week's topic is, what is it, Morrow? Oh, okay. Unmuted. <laughs> it's, uh, it's actually about uh, the future and, and futurism. Uh, you know, uh, an awesomely great topic, to be honest with you. We'll be covering some of the uh, technologies and things of that nature that, uh, we're starting to see, uh, you know, more towards the future. But right now, I think there's a lot of relevance in t today and uh, things things that are happening today. So uh, with that, though, I'm going to ask everyone to hit the like button if you like this live stream, help others find the video. If you haven't already, subscribe and uh, hit that uh, little bell button if you want to get notified of uh, any future videos we uh, produce. In addition, um, this is one of our fun live streams. Um, and uh, it's intended to be highly interactive. So don't, uh, unlike some of the ones where we interview a guest and we say, hey, bring your questions at the end. You know what? Put your comments in, put your questions in. We want to hear from the peanut gallery. Talk to each other, talk to us all through the live chat throughout this thing. Um, that is what it is. All right. Hey, hey, Chris and Jared and Nahid. Uh, it is awesome to all see you on the live stream tonight. Um, uh, okay, I have a little confession to make. You got five minutes. Five. I minutes didn't. I didn't want to do this live stream. Hmm. And, um. You and and now Moro's like what? Because hmm. we talk about this stuff all the time, right? Absolutely, absolutely. So the reason why I don't want to do live stream is um because okay. So what are we talking about? We're talking about artificial intelligence, machine learning. Yes, yes. We're talking about self-driving cars. Absolutely. We're talking about blockchain. Yep. Um, and we're talking about CRISPR. And CRISPR. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and futurism and futures thinking. That's right. That's right. Uh, or, okay. So <laughs> I am so not an expert in any of those things, but I've done things in all of those things. Mm. Not CRISPR. Um, I'm going to say I, I tend to read a lot of articles, uh, not just in cybersecurity, but, you know, the cover technology in general. Uh, so each of these, maybe with the exception of CRISPR, although I have been keeping tabs on that, um, are things that I've read, uh, books that I've read. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a subscriber of Blinkist. So for those of you who've never seen Blinkist, very cool. You can kind of learn a topic in 15 minutes. And then if you decide that, that's the thing for you. You can read the rest of the book. So I've, I've tended to read a lot of those types of books and listen to a lot of uh, different uh, podcasts, things of that nature. So, you know, the, the conversation, although I don't consider myself an expert, I never consider myself an expert in any field, to be honest with you. 
I would definitely say I'm an enthusiast. So, you know, uh, this is, uh, I think, a thing that I'm going to say, although it's my opinion, I do have or I have read a lot of material regarding a lot of these topics. So, so there, um, and I think that is a great reason for why uh, we would do this. You know, if we talk about cybersecurity, I think there's an argument to be made that we and our guests mm -hmm. can make a valid professional contribution to everyone who might be watching, whether they are professionals or not. Mm -hmm. um, and in this, we can't. But I think that's also why it's valuable is because everyone else watching is not likely to be an expert, but very interested in it. Mm -hmm. And um, I think in approaching some of these advanced topics, hearing from someone else who's read about it is just as valid, uh, essentially facilitating one's discovery and discussion. And it's just super cool, right? Absolutely. That's I mean, why you're here. Dude, seriously, it's it's kind of what we chat about in Discord on Fridays, right? Random yeah. things like this. And these are the things that I really want to share. So, so I'm going to try to not come off as a pompous ass, which is a <laughs> giant risk for me because I'm going to inevitably say, you know, back in 2010, I helped organize a library futures thinking conference. And uh, let me show you the video of my self-driving car that I made in 2006. And I'm going to do all that. So please forgive me, please, because I'm going to seem such a jackass. <laughs> um, not, I'm trying not to be a know-it-all because I don't know anything. I'm not an expert, but I've dabbled way too much. Um, so that we, speaking of dabbling, um, speaking of thinking this is cool, let's bring on our, uh, guest. Um, hello, Warren. Good evening, everyone. Uh, so, uh, everyone, Warren LaFontaine, um, was one of the inspirations for why we ever did the live stream. You've heard that in about four of our live streams, but the people who've inspired us were more was like, oh my God, we have to do a podcast. And you remember that conversation we had with Warren? And so we finally got around to, Warren didn't know this, but for about a month, we'd be like, oh my God, we have to talk about all of these cool technologies. Um, Warren is um, quite a contributor to those cool conversations. Uh, Warren, would you like to introduce yourself? Uh, sure. Uh, my name is Warren LaFontaine. I'm, a, like probably most of your audience, an IT professional. Uh, I'm more of a generalist, so I, although I do listen to the uh, security stuff, it's more of uh, out of uh, just a personal interest of mine rather than a professional interest. Uh, and uh, like Morrow, I'm interested in everything and read just about everything that crosses my eyes. Uh, so I've been tasked today with talking and introducing self-driving cars and blockchain and contributing other elsewhere where we're asked to, where we're required. Yeah, we all sort of divvied up these advanced con uh, concepts and said, yeah, I'll embarrass myself on that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, now, before we start, um, so I have, in the last uh, couple days, updated um, the show notes um, with a lot of readings. So unlike our previous show notes, I don't really have a breakdown of commentary, but what I have done is tried to provide a whole bunch of interesting readings. Some of them are articles. Uh, we have a giant book list here on futurism and futures thinking from Futures Thinking Conference and things about most of the topics we're covering. I don't think I've got any blockchain stuff, but um, I will update this post-show as well. Um, well, that said, let me give you a little 
um, introduction. Uh, we're doing this because it's cool, but there's value in engaging in futurism, futurology, uh, foresight, or futures thinking, as it's variously called. In 2010, I helped organize a futures thinking conference for libraries. Um, and a lot of people think why someone would engage in futurism or futurology is to predict the future. And this is not it. Rule number one of futures thinking is forget about making predictions. What we really want to do is engage in a discourse that helps us um, become to build readiness and reduce uncertainty. In many ways, you can think of this as a decision intelligence exercise where you consider your own goals and desires and beliefs and then consider and then ask, okay, what might occur in the future? What might the future look like? And then you start to look for what might signal something disruptive. And then that prompts you to say, well, how could we, re how could we be ready for a future that is filled with uncertainty. And these exercises are quite handy. Um, but we're doing it because it's cool. <laughs> well, I mean, and you know, honestly, I'm gonna add in here. So not, not not to also think about trying to predict the future, but also realize that sometimes, uh, especially in the last like 60 years, science fiction has actually driven the future. So I mean, it's something that it's a comment I made while uh Michael and uh, Warren were chatting with me when, when we were planning this this live stream is a, a good example of st uh, Star Trek. Uh, when you look at some of the technology that, you know, is showcased in Star Trek and you're talking about a show that's, you know, 50, 60 plus years now, uh, we're starting to see some of that technology, uh, you know, co come into existence today. Uh, everything from, you know, the sliding doors, right? The automated sliding doors when you walk in front of the uh, motion sensor to uh, the tricorder, for example, or, uh, you know, although it's kind of late now and older, but, you know, the flip phones, like those Motorola, Motorola Razor phones from, you know, 10 years ago, 10, maybe 15 years ago. So, uh, you know, it's something to consider, right? It's not about predicting so much as, you know, maybe influencing a little bit of, you know, uh, the, the course of uh, future um, technology. So, uh, it, it's true. So, uh, Moro, where shall we start? So I think we're going to start by cracking into the whole, you know, concept of self-driving cars and, you know, where, where we're going with that. Uh, and it's an interesting topic because I feel like everyone on this show probably knows someone or knows someone that knows someone else that owns uh, a Tesla, for example. Uh, and, you know, they're, they're very cool cars, uh, you know, aside from the fact that, you know, they are electric powered which in itself is also a very cool technology and, you know, another future thought. But the self-driving portion is what really, I think, uh, enamors people to, you know, look at look at the Tesla. And I know that uh, I have a friend, Jason, who recently bought a Model 3 Tesla with all the latest upgrades on it. And man, I tell you, that guy, uh, he raves he raves about the self-driving qualities on it. And, you know, it's only really improving. As, as time goes on, it, it really is improving technology. So... With that said, I am going to pass this off on to Warren, who I've asked to kind of break us in to this uh, whole topic of self-driving cars and where we're going with it. So to you, Warren. Okay, thank you, Mauro. Let me know so, when you want to share your screen and I'll add it. Yeah, Michael, you can do it now. We can... 
So uh, this is a, uh, a website, Digital Trends. It talks about how self-driving cars have really been around since the 50s. If you think about the first uh, uh, things in a car that, that were not all human controlled, automatic uh, brakes and cruise control, then you move on to uh, level two in the emergency braking, which is in, uh, according to this, uh, since 2000. Uh, and then the, the automatic driving functions of the Tesla will be lane keeping and stuff like this um, in the, uh, and there's a uh, discussion in this article that the most advanced one is actually the uh, Cadillac Super Cruise. And I'm gonna have another screen to show you later with some uh, highways in the United States that you can just drive without your hands on the wheels. Uh, the uh, And that would fall in the level four, which is uh, in testing and just in the very cusp of production. And then according to uh, this article, level five is gonna be 2060. So perhaps that will, will, maybe that's an area of uncertainty we can discuss in a few minutes. I'm gonna stop this screen and share another screen. So Michael, if you can pop that one up. This is a, uh, a, a picture of some highways that you can drive with um, your new Cadillac, which I'd, I'm not sure the the price the price point on that thing though, but these are the uh, highways in the United States that you can drive with Super Cruise with your without your hands on the wheel, uh, which is pretty interesting. You have to have a Cadillac that has an active Wi-Fi hotspot, cellular access, and uh, GPS access in order for it to work. So um, I think that there, there's still, uh, if we go back to the, can't go back, but the level four of, of mostly automatic uh, steering, uh, we're, we're on the cusp of being there. I don't know if it would be uh, widely available with just one uh, manufacturer just yet, uh, but um, I think uncertainty will be the rate of ad adoption of this and whether or not it'll be enough of a market to, um, uh, and encourage more investment. Uh, I know Elon Musk is is full on into this, so and he's not easily deterred. So uh, that's the the current state of of um, autonomous vehicles. I think that in the future, uh, what and I talked with uh, Mike and Morrow about this earlier is that perhaps the the drivetrain will be the autonomous vehicle because I don't know why you would if these this was a fully autonomous vehicle a level five vehicle I don't know why you would want to own it if 95% of the time it's just sitting in your garage uh, so then perhaps the next stage is that you you rent a vehicle or lease a vehicle and I have a family of four it takes us 45 minutes to get to the car and we always leave stuff in it so um Perhaps the future will be that the drivetrain will be the fully autonomous vehicle and the passenger compartment will be the thing that you leave in your garage uh, and it will pick you up, take you to where you want to go and leave the passenger compartment in a, in a location. That's just a, a thought on that. So what are your guys' thoughts about that? Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's very interesting. I, I, you know, there's, <laughs> it's, it's such a wide field and it's still, uh, it's still pretty uh, young in its age, but you know, uh, I, I remember reading an article I think it was about five years ago that had posited that by 2025, uh, most of us that own a, you know, I guess a conventional uh, fuel burning vehicle, that will most likely be the last vehicle we own that's not self-driven. And the fact that, uh, you know, there might be a time in, you know, in the, in the very near future that, you know, 
And I know that, you know, Uber has already tested it and is testing it, uh, you know, mm-hmm. aside from those minor blips where, you know, they have had accidents. Um, and, you know, uh, I, I, I don't want to comment on it because I just don't I don't know, you know how much of a setback that it has been and what exactly might have caused that from a technical aspect. But the idea is that, you know, you would have all these self-driving cars uh, on the road. You wouldn't you wouldn't own a vehicle. You wouldn't pay for the insurance. You would just hail a hail a vehicle, hop in and it'll take you to your destination. Um, And then again, you know, uh, Warren, I think your your comment, your idea was very cool, uh, especially for long distances, uh, you know, where, yeah, maybe you want to have your own sort of if you if you want to call it cabin where you have your own. uh, your, your own toys and things of that nature, your own um, uh, uh, luggage, it can, it, it can be there. And then, you know, as soon as you, you get onto the highway, there's like a self drive train that just goes long distances and, you know, you just hop onto that and you keep going to your destination. Then, you know, hop off and get onto a drive train. That's maybe more local for city driving. So, I mean, aside from that, I mean, you know, it's like we were talking about before we started, you know, there's also the hyperloop, right. Which, Again, very interesting, uh, especially for long distances. If we can, you know, accelerate those self-driving uh, cars, or you know, get into a hyperloop in some way, maybe again, it's like a compartment thing, puts you into the hyperloop, and then you just go speeding down at you know whatever uh, three hundred clicks an hour, four hundred clicks an hour to your destination. How cool is that? So, um, <laughs> so what do you think? Well, um. There's a very interesting aspect of this because, um, you know, Warren started off by talking about um, if we had self-driving cars, it will transform how we conceive of a car. And Moro, you brought up the Hyperloop. It's going to change the concept of what we think of as a road. Um, But when self-driving cars um, arrive, it's actually going to trend, it's going to disrupt an, an enormous number of things um, in our day-to-day lives, our marketplace and our culture. So if you think about it, if we have self-driving cars, even anything close to what Warren described, where you have your own cabin that detaches and joins a drivetrain to get to long distance places or even short distance places. Um, this also means that we don't need gas stations. They're mm-hmm. just, there's no, um, gas stations will no longer fulfill a market need. We have gas stations now and the way they're structured is um, we need them in every neighborhood because every neighborhood has lots of cars and the gas station is designed to have people pull up, um, authorize their payment, get their gasoline in a small quantity um, and drive around. Well, if we have self-driving cars, um, one of the first things that you have to think of is that, as Warren said, you might not want to own the car. You probably want to have a service, even if you own the cabin. Mm-hmm. And that means you're probably not going to want to have a garage, maybe for the cabin, um, which means you're also not going to fill up the car. Mm-hmm. Like that's not your responsibility anymore. Mm-hmm. You don't care about maintenance. In fact, you want to get rid of maintenance. That's why it's going to be as you probably convert the experience to a uh, service. Mm-hmm. So now gas stations don't need to exist. 
Um, parkades don't need to exist. We don't need as many roads. Um, yeah. We could actually see a transformation. Imagine like under COVID where um, some of our downtown roads have been closed and turned into pedestrian roads. Um, well, with self-driving cars, you can imagine an experience where um, you don't, your car doesn't take you to some random spot downtown. Downtown is a perimeter. And once you hit the perimeter, you walk. And that's honestly mm -hmm. what we already do. It's just that yeah. we go to a random spot and walk. And in the mm -hmm. future, you can imagine it's like, well, no, the, the convoy of self-driving cars are going to coordinate. They're going to self-organize, figure out the most optimal way to get everyone there quickly, and then sort of drop you off. Um, just imagine the way um, some large campuses have a kiss and ride spot, mm -hmm. right? Yep. It's going to be like that, There's, but an endless stream hopping in and out. Um, there would still be some travel centers, though, because along when you go on a long ride, you still need to have bathroom stops, right, and snack shops. Stops, so And also, unless there's electric vehicles, or even if there is electric vehicles, you'd need to drop off that drivetrain and get a drivetrain that's fully fueled so that you can continue, right? So um, the other thing we have to consider is that, um, so when my father was in grade nine, in the early 50s, he wrote an essay on what it would be like in 1980. And he said we'd have flying cars. And to this day, he's like, where are my flying cars? <laughs> Here's the thing, is the only thing holding us back from flying cars is self-driving. That's true. It, um, for quite a long time, people have actually had viable, roughly $100,000 cost flying vehicles, but you have to pilot them yourselves. And that's the stupid part. And so if we have self-driving cars, we will have self-driving or self-flying cars. And that what that means is like we can have less roads and the last mile can be sort of like, okay, well, you've gotten to that spot, as you were just saying, Warren. And then all of a sudden, the last little bit is, okay, well, we're going to bring you to wherever. Now, this is incredibly disruptive. If you think about it, removing the gas stations means there will be no more retail gas. It's all bulk maintenance parts all centralized really disruptive to manufacturing um the way our uh, they, they can still manufacture the drivetrains and the cabins right so that, that that's why i think that that might be a route forward is because it maintains some of that industry veneer i guess right is that cadillac can still build build you a cabin for their fleet of of drivetrains right uh I, I think it maintains some of that. If there's going to be an ownership model, it will be around cabins. That's for sure. Yeah, um, that's true. But, I, um, but it's it. You you can also imagine that many people, if it converts to a service economy rather than an ownership economy, yeah. Um, many people may think that owning a cabin is luxury, mm -hmm. and that instead, um, you know, a lot of people also focus on well, we're going to have self-driving cars. I don't think so. I think we're going to have self-driving microbuses, like. Mm -hmm eight or five person buses because it's, if you think about the economy of the cabin model, well, there's another cheaper version, which is, well, you don't own the cabin, yeah, but a cabin still comes to you, but yeah. you've got to share the cabin and, and then was, you yeah. can still create a convoy with them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. They, they connect almost like, you know, Legos or something like that. Right. And that just like they attach, attach, and then, whether they became a long snake and then, you know, they one detaches in order to go to its specific destination. 
while the others continue on the main destination. But um, sorry, I'm going to interrupt because, uh, you know, Nathan put in a comment, said uh, the amount of trucker jobs that will uh, be lost as well. Uh, you know what? This this one, I'm not quite sure. I don't think it'll be quite as immediate. Uh, and the reason why I say that is, yes, autonomous vehicles will certainly be a benefit, especially to that uh, segment of the economy. And the reason why is because, I mean, yeah, you look at Elon Musk and, you know, his self-driving truck. Uh, he's mm-hmm. looking at doing that so that, you know, things of, uh, you know, the past, like, you know, where you're hiring truckers to do, you know, long, long distance hauls. drive, yeah. yeah, long hauls and, you know, fatigue sets in and causes an accident. Uh, whereas, in, you know, an autonomous vehicle can, can potentially avoid that, right? I mean, you, in theory, since it's autonomous, it could go on for almost forever really you know the only thing that's limiting it is again uh you know uh, making sure that you know maintenance is done on the truck and to refueling really but i think at the same time you know from that aspect you would still need some supervision some level of supervision that you know a fully autonomous vehicle may not be able to handle uh especially on a on a highway so uh for example again you know if you blow out a tire what's the autonomous vehicle going to do you can program it to try and, you know, you know, swerve, stop, whatever have you. But then there's also like a human element to it where, you know, a human would be like, okay, I'm going to dial, you know, whatever, 911, let them know, blah, 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 things of that nature. So I don't know if fully autonomous is going to be. And, and the, the trucks will have to be uh, sort of a hybrid model where they can do fully autonomous yeah. most of the way. Yeah. But you can't do last mile with a refrigerator. You can't just say, yeah, well, let's get true. it close to its destination. We'll walk it the rest of the way. You, yeah. it, As soon as you get to that highway that isn't mappable or whatever, not capable of driving, mm-hmm. that's when you need a driver to take that same transportation medium and move it forward, right? Right. Um, yeah. I mean, especially with current technology, right? I mean, I think the autonomous cars that exist today uh, although they can read a stop sign and a red light, I don't know if it's necessarily capable of doing things like, for example, in Calgary, uh, you know, at 3.30 uh, in the afternoon, uh, there's a lane change that happens uh, up center. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if a, a fully autonomous car would be able to understand that and be able to lane, lane switch or it would probably try and autocorrect because it thinks that you're in the other lane going yeah. in the wrong direction, right? So there There's are those things. Oncoming that, vehicles. Exactly, exactly, exactly. So, so let me jump in, and I don't want to get into the weeds explaining <laughs> why self-driving cars um, work. Um, but it really, okay. So a, uh, early 2000s, there was an explosion in the effectiveness of self-driving vehicles and walking robots. And it, people had been trying to make them for decades and decades and decades. Um, the MIT artificial intelligence program hailed as the leaders had gotten nowhere under Marvin Minsky forever. Mm-hmm. And um, this new guy Brooks comes in um, leading the MIT um, uh uh, media lab and he's got this radical idea up until that point everyone in AI everyone in cognition was saying this is the way intelligence works sense think act or if you're in cybersecurity it's an OODA loop orient observe observe orient decide act Min- uh, Brooks came in and said no this is nonsense sense act and so he began to build robots that didn't think, 
did not contain an internal model of the world. And lo and behold, everyone started getting traction. DARPA sponsored the autonomous vehicle project where there's a competition um, to see who can make war vehicles essentially um, um, work autonomously. And by creating vehicles that were a collection of loosely coupled, but um, uh, sense act um, devices with a supervisory module that didn't plan everything they were going to do. That would do the Minsky type of rationalization. But it's almost like it's on a slight delay. So the vehicle is driving itself, individual pieces, every wheel doing its bit, um, sensing the environment, doing rapid pattern matching, and just acting, sense, act, sense, act. And then the supervisory unit goes, hey, you're heading to a ditch, and then can override. And the thinking in cognition today is that this is probably the way our intelligence works, that most of what we do is very uh, tightly coupled pattern matching, uh, sensory input to rapid pattern matching stuff that isn't part of our brain. It's part of my hand, my back. Um, and then we act, and then our brain, just on a little delay, gets to see the picture of what we're doing, goes, uh, that was stupid. Um, and then allows us to take control. And our day-to-day lived existence moment to moment is one of sensing, acting, and then interpreting. Um, and that's what's made our walking robots. Um, I just posted a link to my robot. I won't play this two and a half minute video, but in 2006, I made a robot that all it does is sense and act. It's got about 20 lines of code and it can follow a wall and it can navigate an environment following, circling a light, doing a figure eight, and even doing a, later on, a slalom or navigating around all these pillars in 20 lines of code because I took out the implicit model of the world. It has no model. It does not know what a pillar is. It doesn't know, doesn't have no map. All it does is sense its environment and respond to it. And it is slick. Except that all of that, all that car can do is not hit stuff. If you want to get to Red Deer, it's not going to get you to Red Deer. That's right. (laughs) It is not going to get you to Red Deer. But that was the breakthrough. And anyway. Mm -hmm. I, I think I've gotten to the weeds in a way I didn't want to get Oh, it. no, 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 that's okay. Uh, Emily actually posited a uh, thought. Didn't Michelin start moving to a tire-as-a-service model for fleet clients? Wonder if other, other manufacturers will follow suit in a self-driving world. That's a good point, Emily. I, I think so. I mean, that's definitely a possibility. When you look at uh, the, the world today, we're, we're going to that whole, you know, consumption model. You know, no longer do we want to own anything. We only want to, you know, lease it or use it pay a small fee for it. And after we're done, wipe our hands of it. And it's no longer our, um, our problem. So mm-hmm. that's, that's very, yeah, that's a very astute uh, comment. So, um, but that being said, I'm going to, uh, I think we're going to roll into the next, uh, the next topic, but I'm going to leave with one, uh, one thought here in terms of autonomous vehicles. Uh, I, I think we're a lot closer than we, th- we think we are. Uh, and I'm going to say that with like uh, super tankers, for example, uh, that deliver oil to Asia. Mm-hmm. Most of those boats right now are actually autonomous. Uh, when you look at it, 
they use GPS coordinates and literally, I don't know what it looks like today, but back in the day, you could look at a satellite map and you could see the string of super tankers that were basically like, I think less than 15 minutes apart. You can, you can see the globe in the, uh, or sorry, the live map. You can see this line that goes from like Saudi Arabia all the way to Japan and then back. And it's just, it's just amazing. I was thinking this week with the, um, with that super tanker that ran aground in a very precious reef, one of a kind reef in the world. Mm -hmm. Um, if we weren't letting the humans drive. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Humans don't get drunk. They don't, or sorry, That's robots right. don't, don't drink. They don't get tired. Right. They don't get sick. Right. And they only follow what instruction that they're given. So. And they don't second guess. Is and that really a reef? Yeah. I didn't expect a reef to be yeah. here. I'm just going to yeah. keep going. Yeah. yeah. In the sense so. act world, it's like, no, there's really a reef there. <laughs> yeah. Well, exactly. Exactly. So, so maybe it's not all perfect. Who knows? But. I think, uh, you know, it's safe to say that, you know, sooner or later, we're going to get there. So, okay. So with that, uh, our next topic is actually CRISPR. So I know this topic, but I don't know if I can explain it nearly as well as Michael can. So I asked Michael to kind of give an overview of CRISPR for those of you that don't know what CRISPR is. So, Michael. Okay. I'm going to get to embarrass myself a bit here. Um <laughs> Um, so first of all, those of you in the audience, I know you're going to see what you're going to, you're going to get my question in 30 seconds. Can you please type in here? How many of you before now have heard of CRISPR? And I'm going to just type that in the chat. So you know what we're talking about. Um, so CRISPR is most commonly known as a gene editing technique. Uh, I'm not even going to tell you what it stands for because it really doesn't matter. Um, it could be one of the most, um, destructive, beneficial, and scary um, technologies that we have. So for um, decades and decades, people talked about genetic engineering or genetic editing. And in, um, in agriculture, it was a big deal. And they had some techniques that are referred to as bacteriophage-based techniques or bacteria-based techniques. And they could, they could edit gene sequences, and so you could make like... Um, uh, rice that had enhanced protein, um, antibiotic resist or antibiotic producing um, um, vegetables. Um, you could have wheat that wasn't capable of self-replicating. So you could, you know, Monsanto could sell it to the farmers and the farmers would have to keep buying new mm -hmm. seed every year because they couldn't collect their own seed. Well, there's all sorts of consequences, but it really wasn't, it was really labor and science intensive to come up with the discoveries for that kind of genetic engineering. Um, CRISPR came along and um, the first thing you need to know about CRISPR is when it comes to genetic editing, they don't always talk about genetic engineering. It's really, really, really precise. So uh, quite often it's called genetic shears or genetic scissors. If you can identify a string of DNA, you can chop that string out very, very precisely. So in the first applications of it, um, what they do is say, well, we don't like, this is dangerous. This is um, um, uh, a disease. This is cancer. Let's just, let's just cut that out. Um, later increments in CRISPR 
allowed them to actually copy and paste. So they could, you know, it's just like your text editor, search and replace, find me this pattern, replace it with another equal size pattern. And that's where things got really, really interesting and really, really scary. So the first thing it did was it dropped the cost of um, doing PCR. So polymerase chain reaction is used in gene sequencing. So, you know, the human genome project, you want to map out all the genes of the world well, that became, that, that was a really slow process um, and pretty expensive. And under, with CRISPR, they could do that super cheap and fast, um, which is why we hear about it in COVID all the time. Is you, if you just Google CRISPR COVID, you'll come up with all these people going, oh, we think there's a CRISPR-based therapy. Or uh, the big one is, we think there's a faster way to do COVID detection using CRISPR techniques. Um, so it dropped the cost of PCR and PCR is used in just like a million things from like, uh, testing DNA samples, uh, seeing if you've got a disease, seeing if you're the criminal, like, um, so it sped that up, but then the whole copy and paste business meant if you knew the function of a set of genes, you could replace them. Um, and there's this old joke, um, uh, Western bioethicist says, hmm, I wonder what the moral implications of CRISPR are. And the Chinese scientist says, hold my beer. And right now in China, <laughs> they don't follow the same ethical standards that in the West they have. And so you've got people um, choosing the sex of their babies, um, genetic in genetically engineering new breeds of dog. Um, let me tell you, having a designer pet, that's just around the corner. Absolutely. Um, it'll be it'll be like that movie, uh, The Sixth Day, <laughs> with Arnold Schwarzenegger. I that was more reanimating, uh, uh, cloning, and animating. But realistically, so or are we right? Let me show you just this little video that will. Um, so this is from the Mayo Clinic. Um. This is what's called uh, Cas9, and everywhere you go, you see this shape. This is a little bit of a what's called RNA targeting. This here is the sequence of DNA that you want to search and replace. You want to find that somewhere in the DNA, and so you make this delivery package, which is kind of a virus, um, well, well-known technique that existed before CRISPR. And then you're gonna, it's gonna go and infect all the cells really fast. And then it's going to come along until, see, this is our, our Cas9. And then also look at the bottom. <clears throat> exact same genetic sequence. And then what's going to happen, and I won't bother explaining this part, but it's basically going to cut out that sequence. And then it's going to replace it with the sequence we want. And that happens fast. And that happens cheap. Now, the real trick is um, they have to constantly come up with new techniques um, for this copy-paste mechanism. So when you hear articles, they'll be like, you'll hear what I just said. It's really accurate, and it can search and replace genetics with precision. 
And you'd be like, oh my God, everything is solved. Well, we still don't understand the functions of gene sequences and not all gene sequences can be targeted effectively. And in some cases, the copy paste is harder. So quite often what they do is they come up with, they're like, oh, here's the application. We want to make your eyes blue. Okay. Can we identify what makes your eyes blue? And can we identify a sequence that would change them to green? And then can we make a delivery package that would do that reliably? And that's actually not um, easy. And so that's the limiting factor right now. But literally every month you can Google CRISPR and find some mind-blowing new thing that someone's doing. And one of the most disruptive things that's going on is that, that, that dichotomy of East versus West. Whereas in the United States, you can't do this research without ethics approval at your university. Whereas in China, whether you're a private company or a university, if there's a valid application that's approved um, and approval is just power, you can go for it. And so crazy, crazy stuff is happening outside the Western world. Um, yeah, I know. Um, yeah. And the, well, and thank you for the introduction and the explanation, Michael. <laughs> I'll shut up now. Oh, no, 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 no. That's okay. You can keep talking. But uh, so the reason why uh, I, I thought I could take this on uh, as a conversation topic was specifically for that reason that Michael had mentioned that uh, they are actually looking at this for implications in fighting the flu or even the cold virus and for that matter of fact, COVID. So what's interesting is, as many of you know, uh, I would say as recently as 20 years ago, we started to see a regression of the effectiveness of antibiotics for various reasons, right? Um, you'll even see some so shocking videos out there of uh, fishermen in uh, Vietnam, for example, that will, uh, you know, they're farming, farming fish in a very dirty uh, <laughs> pool of water. Uh, but in fact, effectively, they're in order to grow or uh, cultivate that many fish, they have to make sure that, you know, not one of them gets sick. So all they do is they basically sprinkle antibiotics into there. And as you know, right, uh, you know, viruses, bacteria, whatever, whatever you want to call it, uh, they evolve. It's just natural selection. So effectively, I mean, you know, antibiotics are starting to basically become less effective. And really to combat that, uh, scientists needed to come up with a different strategy. And this is where CRISPR becomes crucial for, for, for that. The idea is that we're not just, you know, using uh, old technology, uh, old ways of actually, um, you know, combating these, these types of uh, vi viruses. The idea is that we can use CRISPR, identify the, uh, the, I guess, the malicious components of a virus or a bacteria and completely eliminate it. So, uh, like, for example, in the case of COVID, could you imagine something, you know, something we could release where it would identify COVID, go into action, strip out that RNA sequence, put in something that's completely null, and away we go. Completely um, mind-blowing. Or disrupting the way viruses work. So many viruses, you know, they infect your cells. Mm -hmm. um, they co-opt the machinery within your cells to reproduce themselves. Well, while, while that's occurring, and some viruses work over really long periods of time. Mm -hmm. So what's scary about COVID, we don't know if it's something that can be vaccinated. Um, some viruses stick with you your whole life. And um, imagine that you know the virus is working in your cells. So, and if you can 
target that gene sequence, you could say, well, you know what? Let's just go in there and every time we see that, we copy and, re and replace it in the cell. So the virus goes in there, co-ops your cell, commandeers it, and then the CRISPR stuff goes in and goes, no. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Honestly, I, I, you know, being in cybersecurity, I kin it to like, you know, old school antivirus. We used, uh, you know, we essentially use fingerprints uh, and fingerprints to identify threats. So really, uh, you know, when, when we look at, you know, fighting the flu virus, it's the same thing. Flu vaccines are just basically a fingerprint, uh, something that your body can identify and, and, and try and attack. There are but, so many parallels to cybersecurity. Oh, I, not know, just I know, right? I know. The I way know. we do uh, vulnerability research, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, yeah. uh, you know, um, yeah. how difficult it is to understand the interaction. Of, you know, it's like, oh, yes, we'll just cut the sequence and it'll solve the problem. And you're like, oh, that's actually. Has so, other... do you, so do you think that once they can make green dogs and purple cats in China, that that will spread to the rest of the world? Like that it'll be an undeniable force? Or do you think that it... Um, will so it's be it's, restrained somehow you know it's it's that ethical question right it, you know i guess i akin this to essentially world war ii and what the nazis were doing in terms of uh genetic research not just genetic but bio research uh you know they would take prisoners and you know just experiment on them with with without haste and the, but the reality is you know without those experiments some of the technology we have today wouldn't be in existence so, mm -hmm. I mean, yes, there's the moral implication, right? There's that idea that we did something wrong, but we, we, we managed to fix something, like whether that's cancer. I mean, because theoretically, this, this technology is probably the thing that's going to help us, uh, I'm not going to say rid cancer, but it's going to do a drastically, you know, uh, um, drastic, um, whatever you want to call it. It's going to knock cancer down to like something that's going to be, you know, almost yeah. an afterthought. It has to, it's cancers that can be well understood. Yeah, genetically. yeah, sorry, sorry. Yeah, so um, like uh, maybe like a leukemia or something like that might be uh, more up the alley. But anyways, I guess what I'm trying to say is, you know, Warren, yeah, you're, you know, although that, you know, we, we in the Western world may think it's ethically wrong for to turn a cat purple, uh, the Chinese are already doing it. And the reality is that eventually it will become accepted here. Insurance companies, when it comes to medical applications, will determine what is ethical and not, and that will be determined by their risk. So um, if an insurance company um, has to pay for your treatment for a disease, but there's a, uh, a um, CRISPR therapy, mm -hmm. even though that's risky, they'll basically look at it and go, mm, is the CRISPR therapy... Um, less risky to them, you know, and they will come up with an actuarial table and they'll say, mm, yeah, you're not getting the traditional treatment. You're going to get the CRISPR treatment um, or we're not going to cover you. But we also have to realize that the world um, in the eighties became a very corrupt place. Mm -hmm. And that there's many places in the world that don't play by the same um, rules that we set up for ourselves in North America and Europe. And so uh, in Dubai, they will buy whatever's cool. Mm -hmm. Oligarchs mm -hmm. will do whatever the hell they want based on whatever rules they want. And so it could just be that we create a new form of medical tourism. Um, I mean, honestly, it's it, it's really the next step in uh, the whole Jurassic Park, you know, 
theory, right? <laughs> Theoretically, right? If, so, if you could, if you could take a crocodile and copy and mm -hmm. paste a little Pleosaurus uh, DNA and mm -hmm. create Jurassic Park, you would. No mm -hmm. one's gonna, no one's going to do what Jurassic Park did and create a whole new dinosaur oh, no. from a sample. They're no. literally just going to modify something oh, to be oh, dinosaur-like. Oh, 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 exactly, exactly, exactly. So, but you know, at the same time. Uh, yeah, the implications are great. Maybe we can uh, get rid of heart disease and things of that nature. But um... so, so Nathan says, okay. So uh, say you know, say we have an issue here. It creates a new disease. At what point can we not put this back in the bag, and from wiping out normal stock? Well, this is the interesting thing: is CRISPR is fairly targeted, but um, I've and I have not explored this. I'm just total sp speculation, hot air. Um, the, the delivery mechanism for CRISPR, um, gene editing is these, um, very well-known, um, uh, phages, virus packages. Um, so they work like a virus, um, they attach to a cell and inject their stuff, but it just happens to be the CRISPR gene editing stuff. Um, one could imagine a horrible, horrible, um, weapon that is a virus that's transmittable, but everything and this is where i'm just talking out of my ass um, <laughs> everything i've read is like crispr's um um a, is kind of precise in that regard um so they're they're working with a limited set of tools that do some very precise work and it's a lot of work to come up with new ways to deliver it um i was looking at a web page earlier tonight that i don't understand this like got the 12 new uh, cast alternatives, cast 12, and they all have different mm. shapes and they explain how this shape is really important for the type of application for what it can edit. So I'm not sure we're at a point where um, everyone worried in old um, uh, genetic engineering that we could accidentally create a disease. And the worry was because it was so imprecise. We could add, we could make um, a pineapple, create some extra protein in it. We'd go like, hey, that's a really vitamin enriched um, pineapple. Um, but there was always this worry that what will happen because that's imprecise and CRISPR's not quite like that. Um, Zombie apocalypse. <laughs> Personally, I'm hoping that, you know, uh, I can use this to grow, you know, adamantium skeleton and claws and a self-healing body. You know, and possibly a beard and a little bit thinner and, you know, look like a, a little bit more like Hugh Jackman, but Hey, you know, that's just my dream. So <laughs> Hugh Jackman, good choice. Very good. Right. Choice. Right. You know, everyone loves that Australian accent, right? Although he's playing a, he's technically playing a Canadian in the movie, right? Canadian music, right? So <laughs> anyways, uh, I guess uh, we'll, we'll put this back on the rail. So uh, I'm going to switch it up a little bit. I know our agenda was to cover machine learning and AI first, but I, I think I'd like to explore blockchain because uh, AI will will definitely go into <laughs> into a rabbit hole. So with that being said, I've asked Warren to kind of you know introduce okay. blockchain. So with that, Warren. Well, uh, blockchain basically is a, a database. Uh, so in my blockchain explained uh, screen, it's a, it's a database that's shared across computers and that uh, the records are are changed once there's consensus amongst the computers, uh, and the the uh, the network makes constant checks of uh, to make sure that everything's right. That's why we when we were talking earlier, it's uh, important to have a large enough uh, 
tribe of computers that uh, it makes uh, taking it over uh, hard, uh, but still small enough that it can be um, agile enough and have those transactions per second to be usable, right? We were talking about how Bitcoin has uh, uh, long transaction times and stuff like that, and it, it's a, a failing of that technology. But now that there there's new uh, Bitcoin technology, or sorry, blockchain technologies that have uh, faster transactions per second. So um, I I remember musing a number of years ago that this will uh, put cybersecurity out of business because uh, the it'll be the the um, the digitization of trust, right? Once everything can be in a blockchain, you'll be able to know that something is happening and uh, and be fairly sh uh, secure with it, right? So uh, the I guess the uncertainty is whether or not it'll actually have the processing speed to be able to do that. So that's why I think the the focus on it, just like uh, when I started in IT, this is. Uh, one of those old IT uh, stories, uh, they said it was an engineering uh, wall that the transmission speed for a digital network couldn't get above 9,600 baud. It just couldn't happen because that's just the law. Uh, and uh, the, I think it'll be the same with blockchain is that they, the uh, transactions per second for, for uh, visa, online, visa payments is about 24,000 per second. Uh, blockchain, for example, is 4.6 per second, which is far short of it, but there are new other ones that are claiming on paper to be 100,000 per second. Uh, I think that those are are dubious claims at best, because if, if you could do that, there are lots of applications that would that would take that secure application at such a speed and and run with it right so i, I think that there's still some some uh further development uh there uh but it'll it'll could have a a rather huge um uh implications in the internet of things and whether or not uh you can have all your devices it sort of have rock solid trust, right? Because there's a there's a known uh, um, yeah, because the the tracking yeah the database is distributed, and again, like you mentioned, um, it's sort of a consensus model. So you know, as long as the uh, the last standing node, I guess, in that network is alive, it's it's going to have a copy of that database, right? So right, it's um, yeah, it, it's very cool technology. I mean, it's existed for you know decades. Uh, it's only in the last 15 years that we've seen, you know, such a surgence of it, uh, mainly due to Bitcoin, uh, like or hate Bitcoin. I'm of the camp. I hate Bitcoin <laughs> but, uh, for various other reasons other than, you know, the underlying technology. I think the technology and the principle is cool, uh, but the use of Bitcoin and what it's used for, I I don't know. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to disagree. I think it's in our... Um, collective awareness because of mm -hmm. um bitcoin mm -hmm. um certainly a newsworthy newsworthy thing because of its connection to cybercrime, capital flight um yeah. markets digital yeah. currency but the the reason why um so a lot of money gets invested into blockchain technologies mm -hmm. and almost none of it has anything to do with Bitcoin. Um, I mean, sorry, um, 
this is n- not a flex, um, but it is kind of, um, I'm looking like a jackass again. Anyways, here's my certification of blockchain. Um, I highly recommend anyone take this IBM blockchains essential class. It's like, take you six hours tops. And the, like every lesson, they basically have a pop quiz where they mention Bitcoin. And if you if you take the bait, you get the question wrong because IBM will have nothing to do with cryptocurrencies. <laughs> I don't think true. cryptocurrency is the killer app of blockchain. No, I, I think I think it's a and that's what bit. I wanted to get at is that you yeah. you spoke about trust and that's part of it and that goes hand in hand. One of the reasons why um, the financial industry invests so much is um, smart contracts, and that's yeah. mm-hmm. a form of trust where. Um, you know, so the idea of the blockchain is this immutable ledger. Mm-hmm. And in some blockchains, those are distributed open ledgers. In some, they're um, distributed closed ledgers. Um, but if you can immutably put something on there that's totally verifiable and there's non-repudiation, so if a transaction occurs or if something gets written to it, you cannot, you can prove it occurred and you can't prove that it didn't mm-hmm. occur. Um, that's really powerful in terms of trust. And so the idea is we're going to write a contract in, and the contract's going to be software. And I'm going to say, um, and this happens all the time right now in in the Ether. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, if, yeah, Ethereum. Yeah, I, I can go to Warren and say, Warren, mm-hmm. um, I'll give you um, two Ether if you write this code for me. And then I write the unit test. And we put that contract out there and the thing is I don't have to send the contract to Warren. I can just put the contract on the blockchain Mm -hmm. and anyone could come along and fulfill that contract. Mm -hmm. And then as soon as the terms are fulfilled, they get paid. Yeah. And smart contracts from that point of view are really, really amazing. Um, They do have a flaw in that they're just software. Mm -hmm. And if there's bugs in the software, they can be exploited. And so this is, I'm waiting for the, the smart contract apocalypse. I'm waiting for it to become an application where we all use it for some purpose, maybe payroll. And our weekly pay is coming out of a smart contract. And one day someone realizes there's a fundamental flaw in, in some little thing we didn't expect, but it's in software. It's got nothing to do with the blockchain. And nothing to do with the, the the smart contract, but the software library on which the smart contract was written. And some hacker is going to get all of our paychecks. And because it's immutably written to the blockchain, yeah. the only way to reverse it is to literally roll back, roll back and fork. Which is exactly what, what what happened with Ethereum uh, several years ago, right? I mean, that's why there is an Ethereum and an Ethereum Classic, right? So Classic, obviously the, classic guys, <laughs> obviously, the guy, the zealots, they're like, no, this should be immutable, completely immutable. Whereas and the guys are like, no, this was illegal activity. We're going to roll it back. So they essentially forked it. And uh, the, the bad part was that, yeah, like even though everyone told them, okay, yeah, this is going away, it, as long as those servers are still talking uh, Ethereum Classic, it exists, but right? it's identifiable as a as the mm-hmm. old way, right? So another is, thing is. Is, is I've heard that um, it could help with uh, land title reform, yeah, in yeah. Africa, right? Yeah. Like where yeah. where if you don't know the local strongman, you don't own your house. Mm-hmm. Uh, so th- that can be reversed, and and that kind of uh, mm-hmm. social reform could could be helpful in societies around the world. 
you're right. Uh, I can't remember the exact country. Uh, I want to say Zimbabwe or something like that. But yeah, mm-hmm. they went through that whole process. Uh, and it wasn't just like the whole strongman thing. It was just that, you know, over the years, fires, things of that happened, you know, contracts, you know, land titles got lost. And so someone else would just come in and, you know, make a fake, yep. you know, title and say, yeah, it's mine. All of a sudden, that person who had owned the property for generations in the family just, lo- lo- you know, lost it. Just because you know they couldn't prove that they they owned it from the beginning, so yeah, you're right, Warren. Uh, having something like this would be tremendously helpful in that case. You know, maybe you know even in our application, you know, for um, uh, you know like uh, the registries, right? Uh, you know, so when you mm-hmm. have your car registered, it be on record. There's no way to really lose it as long as you know your your network is up, and it's you know verifying transactions. It's always going to have a copy of the database and it's immutable. So that's but, the application that IBM makes you build in that class. <laughs> they make you never, build so, a car yeah, dealership. I've never, I've never used their Hyperledger technology, but it's 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 quite interesting. Um, so, so do you think that that'll come to uh, a Western, i.e. Canadian society through a uh, financial institution or something that will offer uh, that? Or do you think it'll be in the background? It's, it's, and... it's already happening, actually, uh, many financial institutions. So that's the thing when you're talking about this in a professional setting in a corporation, they don't like the word blockchain, they don't like to use things of that nature. It's actually called distributed ledger technology. So DLT. Mm-hmm. So when you're talking to an executive, or you're talking about this in any form at, at a corporate level, they'll use the term distributed ledger technology. But with that being said, so Royal Bank, for example, they are heavily invested in that Ripple technology that I'd mentioned mm-hmm. to you before we started yep. the stream, just strictly for the idea of being able to, again, send money across the world, literally within minutes, rather than, you know, waiting for the old way, which would, you know, take up to a week for, you know, funds to mm-hmm. clear properly, right? So, yeah, I think it's the SWIFT network, right? The SWIFT network takes forever. But yeah, the idea behind Ripple is, yeah, we can just throw it on. Uh, now that one is actually a private blockchain. So uh, all the servers are owned by Ripple themselves. Um, although I think they might have forked that and they might have some people, certain organizations they trust to host some of their network. But um, yeah, the idea is, yeah, we, we can do what you know Swift can do faster, cheaper and more reliably. So yeah, like RBC is one of those banks that have invested in this tech. But I do know for a fact that, you know, there are several banks in Canada that already have their own department of programmers and developers that are, you know, looking at uh, block, uh, sorry, distributed ledger technology. So I I think um, what you were getting at there um, bears a little bit more emphasis that one of the problems in the financial world is settlement time. Mm-hmm. And the SWIFT system, you know, and if you're cybersecurity, you probably remember a couple of years back, there was some very major hacks based on SWIFT. And so some hackers got in and everyone's like, well, no, they don't know these how these codes work. It's like, well, yeah. And they were able to actually hide the fact that they were um, creating fraudulent transactions with the system. Blockchain wants to make sure that you can't hide a transaction. Anyone who has access to the ledger can verify the ledger, whether it's private or public. But one of the killer applications is settlement time. So have you ever um, had this frustrating thing um, where you have to do a major transaction and you go get a certified check and you think that's as good as cash, but then you go to do the transaction like, well, no, it's still going to take three days to settle or five or seven. And you're like, what? Why did I pay $35 to get the certified check? And they're like, well, no, it's sort of more trustworthy 
settlement times kill deals. Mm-hmm. Um, right. That's right. And one of the things financial institutions want is the trust so that you, you know that if this occurs, it can't be undone, but they want it to settle in seconds. Mm-hmm. And if you can do that, it opens a whole new world for different types of transactions that once we establish that we're willing to make the deal, the deal can occur immediately. Um, in the financial world, they talk about these things called arbitrage, which really means yep. in one place in the world, it's available for price X and another place it's cheaper than X. And if I can identify the arbitrage, I can make money. Well, you know what? If settlements, tra- if settle, if transactions settle quickly, your arbitrage windows shrink and arbitrage is just, I don't think it's good for us, the people who aren't millionaires. Um, it, now, anyways, um, do, you th- do you think there would ever be interoperability between like Ethereum and Ripple and whatever other blockchains come up there? Come out there? Um, not currently, just because, you know, each one uses their own, a separate platform and a separate language in order to develop. Right. Uh, so I, there would have to be some sort of way for each other to write to each other's ledger. So Ethereum as a currency is not tied to Ethereum smart contracts. Mm. Um, yeah, that's true. And so you don't have to do your smart contracts in Ether, but it's just kind of. Yeah. Um, yeah it's, it's just because the, right? the, so. the currency is on the same blockchain. Um, it's also possible to implement. A, one cryptocurrency on somebody else's blockchain. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, uh, there were several cryptocurrencies during, you know, like two years ago during the boom that were using the uh, the Bitcoin uh, ledger. Um, several that are definitely using the Ethereum ledger as well. Uh, but yeah, in, in the end, I think, you know, a lot of these projects have a certain goal in mind. They're trying to distinguish themselves from being just a currency. Uh, Mm -hmm. So like, again, Ethereum's big play was those smart contracts. And I I really do hope that that is the future because it it is quite interesting from a a technological standpoint. So imagine selling your house by logging into a website where you fill out a form that creates the smart contract Mm -hmm. and puts the house up for offer. And it's Mm -hmm. got a series of criteria. And then someone else can counter offer on the contract and put some Mm -hmm. conditions Mm-hmm. And it's all just there. And as soon as your conditions are all met, boom, your house is sold. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, well, I, I would say the right now the biggest use for that, uh, for Ethereum, for example, or even NEO, if you guys are, are familiar with NeoCoin, uh, the smart contract would be tremendously um, uh, helpful for crowdfunding. So let's say that you've got a project that you're crowdfunding and that you've got mm-hmm. a certain limit. Like let's say you have to raise $50,000. You can put that contract out, advertise it, have people donate into your contract. And as long as you raise that $50,000 worth of Ethereum, then the contract executes and, you know, it'll accept the money. But let's say that, you know, it falls short, your funding uh, goal falls short and you only make, you know, let's say $10,000 worth of Ethereum donations. The contract can execute in such a way that says refund everyone because we didn't meet our goal. Mm-hmm. And that in mm-hmm. itself is mm-hmm. tremendously powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, you know, what we pay for crowdfunding platforms, I think they usually take a cut somewhere between two and 7%, maybe even as high as 15%. Uh, it's been a while since I've looked at it, but with Ethereum, yeah, like the, the transaction fees are like nominal, like less than a percent. So, you know, we're not paying for some platform to do all that work for us. We're paying for a system to handle all those, all those transactions, right? So Moro, you just broke my heart. 
I just, you know, in this futures thinking thing, we're always trying to figure out what could be disruptive. And you just made me realize that some of my favorite genres of murder mysteries won't exist under the blockchain because wills, when wills are on the blockchain, there'll never be that murder mystery where it's like, Mm-hmm. Oh, he went and convinced the guy to change his will, but he forged it and then he murdered him and tried to convince everyone he changed the last minute. That just won't you know happen what? because that, it's that, all on the blockchain. That's, that's an excellent use case. You know, so I mean the the implications are wide and quite frankly, yeah, it's there, So do you think blockchains will be democratized like or or do you think that it'll be the sort of the corporate elite and people that can afford No, I uh, think I, I think it's democratized already when you look at it like no one controls block well no one can controls like Bitcoin. Uh, right. Now I say that in air quotes because the reality is most of those miners, the uh, you know the Bitcoin miners, are predominantly Chinese, right? So the Bitcoin farms are in China. I think there there was a statistic about five years ago that said the Chinese own something like forty three percent of the the ledger. I think it's actually increased quite more over the years. So I think it's actually closer to around sixty percent. So right. theoretically, if anyone was going to do a Bitcoin attack, for example, if all the Chinese Bitcoin farmers you know, got together, they could literally modify that ledger. So, you know, there is that danger, right? Um, right. That we have to overcome somehow. So. so not all blockchains are proof of work. And the reason why um, Bitcoin is vulnerable is because it is a proof of yeah. work yeah. Um, blockchain. Sorry, that is to say, for a transaction to occur, someone's got to put in the computing work. Mm-hmm. Um, Ether, Ethereum was supposed to start off as proof of work and then transition to proof of ownership. And that's, that's also interesting because it means whoever owns Hmm. the most resource, um, gets a say in it. And I don't, I'll be honest. I don't get it here. I'm waving my hands. I don't, I don't know. (laughs) You know, honestly, I, um, but it means you have skin in the game, right? But, but it it should be that everyone that has skin in the game knows that it's a fair game that they're playing. Right. Hopefully. Uh, and, and if it's proven to be wrong, Mm -hmm. uh, then, then you would assume that the, the, uh, marketability of that, of that distributed ledger would go down very quickly. Right. Well, exactly. Like it, exactly. You know, people would lose faith and then, you know, they leave and go to some other uh, digital ledger. Right. So. But um, so um, the biggest disruption, I think, that we're going to see, you know, you were asking the very wise question, is this all going to be behind the scenes, private? Or are we going to see something open to democratize? Well, here's here's <laughs> I'm going to disrupt those questions. Those should be the questions. <laughs> but the reality is that China has decided to pull a Mr. Robot and mm-hmm. release their own e-coin. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're fighting a couple things. Capital flight. Most of the owners of Bitcoin are in Asia because people want to be able to get their currency out. Um, and, you know, that's a good point, Michael. So I, I, I sorry to interrupt, but I'm going to say that one of the good things that has uh, come out of Bitcoin and Bitcoin use is actually in um, uh, Venezuela. So as you know, right, you know, uh, that leadership has turned that country into sort of a mess. I'm not going to comment on it anymore. <laughs> but, you know, the people there are having a hard time moving their assets in and out of that country. And they're actually utilizing Bitcoin to do that. So that is definitely the positive of Bitcoin. Uh, for me, the negative is, again, yeah, hackers are using it. And it's just a it's a tool that's enabled them to become more um, more efficient, I guess. So that's so in and. 
purportedly the reason for China doing this is to solve the bad debt crisis. Mm -hmm. um, China's economy is vulnerable. If people don't pay their debts and people are hugely debt ridden there, things would go very bad very quickly. And now if you put this on a digital ledger, mm -hmm. well, you kind of have a basis for knowing who's good for their debt and who's not. Um, and I'm not in a, I don't know anything about that. I can't comment further, but trust transaction times mm -hmm. and um, distributed ledgers, mm -hmm. uh, immutable ledgers. Those are the two factors. If you want to read a really boring book on it, um, <laughs> uh, blockchain revolution. Mm. Mm. I, I think it's way better to read a bunch of articles because that yeah. book was long and tedious. You know, honestly, uh, th this this field of uh, research and uh, development is actually s evolving so quickly. Uh, any book you read will actually be outdated within months, if not weeks. Yep. So it's definitely uh, it, if you if you're interested in this topic, I would highly recommend you guys, uh, you know, doing some research uh, by you know reading the news, to be honest. Uh, with that, uh, you know, I'm going to let Warren get in his uh, final thoughts. And then we're going to move on to the uh, AI and uh, machine learning uh, topic. So, Warren. Well, I, I think that there, uh, maybe in the future, there'll be a crown corporation that'll have a, a blockchain that people will be able to uh, register stuff with. Or perhaps, a, um, it's hard to say in the world of Trump and all the other uh, <laughs> things happening, but True. perhaps maybe even a UN declaration and have a, a United Nations uh, thing. Like it, it could, um, blockchain is something that could, um, uh, I guess, cross international boundaries and stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know how you can have, um, I, I don't understand the technology enough to know whether or not you can have hierarchies of, of blockchains. Um, uh, or if they're all complete separate kingdoms. Uh, but I think that you may have um, uh, hierarchies of blockchains in the future and uh, mm -hmm. something that people, where you can register your will or something uh, mm -hmm. to something that you can trust and not just your bank, right? Absolutely. No, you could have, you could have a hierarchy or a, a cluster where some are slow to, to uh, close transactions and some are, or subtle transactions, some are quick, but mm -hmm. they all have different costs. Um, you just made me think that's the future of democracy is voting should be a smart contract Ooh. and every promise the politician makes Ooh. determines whether they get to keep their vote. And Ooh. if they don't do it, oh, wow. the vote I transfers. So we, instead idea. of it's a perpetual minority idea. government and instead of them it. negotiating who forms government, mm -hmm. the smart contract decides day to day mm -hmm. who forms government. I think that would be, way too populist and insane oh, yeah. it'd be populist, but, yes. but you know what that would be pure democracy in it in its form that's what it would be right but so. if you did it tied to elections oh yeah as voters we have to decide what oh, yeah. we want in advance and it's sort of like mm. oh i gotta put i gotta put my vote well, in smart contract for four years mm -hmm. am i just angry or do i really want that <laughs> that's a good point that's a good point um, okay but uh, okay. with that, we're with that. We're gonna have to move on to AI and machine learning. And again, I'm gonna leave this to Michael to uh, open up an intro. So, Michael. all right. Um, okay, I'm not gonna um, humble brag about the things I've done that aren't that impressive. But we start off with this. 
artificial intelligence programs lack consciousness and self-awareness. Researcher Gwen Branwin wrote in his article about GPT-3. They'll never be able to have a sense of humor. They'll never be able to appreciate art or beauty or love. They'll never feel lonely. They'll never have empathy for other people, for animals, or for the environment. And they will never enjoy music or fall in love or cry at the drop of a hat. Except Branwin lied, GPT-3 and AI wrote that. <laughs> interesting, interesting, interesting. Um, those of you watching, have you heard of GPT-2 or GPT-3? Um, GPT-3 is um, from OpenAI, and it's been in the news for the last two weeks. And it's not. Um, the generalized artificial intelligence that most of us are um, thinking is going to be the big thing that occurs, but it is so profoundly persuasive um, to get our attention. So um, let me start off and introduce this topic because I think almost everyone I talk to um, says, wait a minute, Artificial intelligence, what is that? And how does it differ from machine learning and neural networks and statistics? It's all just math, right? Maybe. <laughs> um, and those of us who work in IT and cybersecurity, I mean, we're just inundated with people telling us about um, machine learning and neural networks and artificial intelligence, mixing up those definitions. So I'm going to set these rules. Generalized artificial intelligence is the holy grail. It is the um, computer that can think, maybe not like us, but as effectively as us, that it can make its own choices, that it has agency, that is, it can sense and affect its environment, um, that it has experiences, that I could say to it, um, um, which is higher? red or blue. And then it could make a choice. And I could say, well, why do you think blue is higher than red? Um, these are fundamental, what we call qualia, um, that would be required. But no one's talking about that in the real world. They're talking about machine learning. Machine learning are a series of models. You can call them algorithms. You could call them, they're deeply rooted in statistics um, that are used for either classification or prediction. And quite often we call them AI if their predictive values profound or startling. Um, quite often you can feed a bunch of data that you'd think, well, there's no way to analyze that. But then we put it into a model and suddenly it makes really, really cool predictions. And then we say, well, that's, wow, that's gotta be artificial intelligence. That's profound reasoning. It's not. And there are other forms of machine learning that are not strictly statistical. Um, so way back in the 90s, in 96, um, I had a company and um, my business partners were really interested in knowledge representations and we were into this system. Oh, I should show that on the screen. I'm showing on the screen uh, the Wikipedia page for Psych, CYC. Um, Psych was got all the headlines the way GPT-3 does where you would people were constantly feeding it 
newspaper articles and then it would ask, they'd ask psych to summarize what it thought of the articles. And so it would, it would suddenly at the end of a day say, um, a president is like a father because a president leads his country and a father leads his family. Now put aside how biased that is, um, in, in how culturally centric it is. Um, that's a pretty profound inference. And that's the nature of psych. Psych did not depend on machine learning in the sense of statistics. It was actually knowledge representation where there was like hundreds of people sitting there taking newspaper articles and then um, breaking them down and tagging them and, and coding them for their actual meaning and creating a knowledge representation system. And then there was an inference engine. Um, and that was based on what we call predicate logic. You don't care. Um, today, GPT-3 is just as profound. Um, you can put something into GPT-3, and this one, this statement in yellow that the robot wrote started off with, tell me about artificial intelligence. <clears throat> and then it wrote this. Now, the interesting thing is um, GPT-3 doesn't have an inference engine. It does not have a knowledge representation model. So it has no sense of the inherent meaning of those words. And it also is not supervised in the way that other statistical techniques work. It basically gets fed the internet and it predicts what word should come next. So you can have it write poems. You can have it write jokes. You can have it write papers and essays all by starting and you type some words and it decides what it, it predicts should come next. Ask it a question. It will predict based on all the other things it saw. Now, years ago, you might remember this um, Microsoft bot that was so profound. You could talk to it and it could interact with you like a human. And then within days, it learned to be quite the Nazi because all it was being fed was a lot of hate speech. And so it started mm -hmm. to talk like a white supremacist. Um, these are profound, but they are not even close to generalized artificial intelligence. Um, machine learning um, basically breaks down, is, is mostly what we talk about today. And that's the really powerful stuff that's behind data science. And really what we're talking about is two categories, prediction or classification. Prediction helps us feed in a whole bunch of data. And if it is like other accurate data, then we can predict. We can put in some new data and say, can you please predict? So we could take a couple years worth of sales data and know all the outcomes because it happened in the past and then feed in a bunch of data from this year and say, how well are our sales going to do? And if the model is good, if the statistical model is good, it's going to predict it well. Then there's classifiers, which are totally different, where you can basically feed in a whole bunch of data, does a statistical analysis and say, let's cluster this and what is more similar to what. And that helps us explain things better and discover underlying patterns. Um, in cybersecurity, that's where it's at, is classifiers. Okay, I could go on forever. <laughs> um, and I'm not, I'm not going to. Um, no worries, no you, worries. you can, you start talking and I'll just jump so, in and say, I would interesting say things. so yeah, like, uh, I guess I'm in that same boat too, right? Like, uh, you know, when I'm, when I'm making presentations, I usually throw up the, uh, you know, the whole 
Terminator is now, Skynet is around the corner. But the reality is, like, I, I, I throw that in as a joke. Sometimes it does come off as a joke. Other times it's like, no, we're not there. And it's like, no, I agree with you. Again, generalized AI is... I, I don't even want to predict how long it's going to take to get, for us to get, get to that stage, but we're not there today. Uh, you know, what we see as AI is literally what Michael described. Really, you know, and in some essence, I'm going to say it, it's just really analytics at a different level, like on, on steroids, if you want to call it that. Uh, the ability to correlate data, things of that nature, which is still very powerful in, in, its, in its essence. Uh, I would say, you know, the biggest thing right now regarding machine learning, even though it's not generalized AI, is still governance. Uh, the reality is, you know, it's almost like the wild, wild west. Everyone is doing, you know, studying, using uh, machine learning for various techniques. Mm. But the reality is, is that, you know, as a country, we're not governing uh, what we're doing with it. And the truth is, you know, machine learning in itself can be quite dangerous uh again you know michael even you know gave that great example of microsoft's engine when you fed that you know that bought you know enough information about <laughs> white supremacy and things like that and just hate in, in general all of a sudden it spit, spat out data that was just really you know all about hate and hate speech never so, train your bot on twitter <laughs> or your president How true is that <laughs> oh, <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, and the reality is that, you know, some of the biggest stakeholders, uh, especially the U.S. and China, they really need to come to, to an agreement uh, and say that, you know what, machine learning will be used for this. We're going to guide machine learning to do this uh, and, you know, avoid using it for this. And that and that's the governance piece that's missing right now. And, you know, I think it's, it's kind of scary because, again, what else can you do with machine learning? You can do a lot. You, you can rig elections. You can do anything. And, you know, honestly, until we put in that fence saying, you know, thou shalt not do this, uh, it's it's up for grabs. And it's a very scary thought. Very, very scary thought. Because, I mean, even in cybersecurity today, uh, you know, we, we are trying to use machine learning to, you know, defend ourselves. But the reality is the flip the, the flip side of that is the bad guys are using it to, you know, get increasingly better at uh, at utilizing their techniques to, to break into um, organizations. So... So the the um, we should address the the big question is like why uh, like take generalized artificial intelligence off the table why is machine learning dis, um, thought to be disruptive and the reason is because it, um, first of all we always think of its predictive value if we can predict things better that could shift power balances mm -hmm. um, the project I showed earlier Psych was very it, it evolved very quickly and some of the earliest investors were all in like they were either giant credit card companies or military or intelligence and then it was it kind of got scary and it's like well if they can draw inferences based on that will it be in the interest of the public um and we have the same thing today gpt3 is thought to be disruptive, even though it's not ever going to be, it's never going to lead to generalized artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. And it's mm -hmm. and it can't even predict the future. All it can do is predict words well enough to make very compelling speech. Well, here's the problem. If I feed it enough data, I could use it to create compelling speech. I can use it to make speech that might generate a very 
um, specific effect. Um, I could create bots, for instance. We already suffer from, uh, say, Russian interference, where um, um, the Russian research organization, basically a troll factory, many troll factories, um, flood our social networks and create chaos, confusion, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. angst um, and animosity between neighbors in North America. Well, imagine if I don't need to hire people to do that, if I have bots that can do it much more quickly, but also much more intimately. Imagine that it's mm -hmm. trained on a model that's specific to each one of us and that I deploy a farm of those models that are configured for each person based on our what we've said in social media. Mm -hmm. Well, now we're each interacting with our own custom troll farm and you could adjust the model so that there's actually you're interacting with a whole bunch of personas and toward, so you, an, toward a manipulative end. So if you think social engineering attacks are complicated now, just wait till the near future. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, um, you know, honestly, I think, uh, no, I mean, this is, a, <laughs> this is a piece of fiction. But for those of you who watch Westworld, for example, uh, in the latest season, we, we kind of see the, the nastiness of AI. Now, again, uh, in, in that show, uh, the AI is probably closer to a general AI. Again, it's all fictional. But when you really look at the underlying um, events that led up to the development of that AI, it was actually machine learning. Uh, and it was actually predicting how a human's life would unfold with, uh, with, with certain data sets. And again, you know, AI only becomes even more powerful the more information you feed it, the more, I should say, unbiased information you feed it. Uh, the trick is there, though. Uh, how do you keep that data unbiased? But more importantly, once you know that data, what are you going to do with it? Uh, and yeah, in Westworld, we saw that, you know, governments were controlling their own people. I mean, a large organization was com controlling basically the outcome of a human's life, which is... Let me let me tie this back to the self-driving cars. Okay. Remember how I, I, I talked about the old artificial intelligence program was sense, think, and act. Mm -hmm. And then we, we got real progress when we said, well, let's have the vehicle be a bunch of components that are sensing and acting. And then a supervisory model module that's not watching in real time, but just a little bit delayed. With, and that thing has a model of the world. Well, now think about what we're talking about here. GPT-3 <laughs> isn't generalized AI. Mm -hmm. But man, it's compelling speech. Oh, absolutely. Now imagine you have another form of machine learning that does classification, another one that does prediction and decision, and it controls GPT-3, which oh, yeah. decides what to say. GPT-3 does the real-time interaction, sense, act, sense, act. But other modules decide, well, how? what's our goal? Mm -hmm. what's the environment look like? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then you can suddenly understand where we will get generalized artificial intelligence. It will be a hybrid. My own gut feeling is that, that those generalized AIs will actually write themselves. We will literally be writing machine learning, um, predicate logic systems, knowledge representation systems that will ultimately be developed to create the generalized AI. So within that uh, psych, did did people have to code the data and enter it in? So then All you day still long, yep. So then you still have 
uh, I guess, human discretion there de determining how data is being coded, right? Um, so then it would reflect the beliefs and cultural values of the coders uh, as much yep. as anything else. Yep. So the basis of psych was what was called um, an ontology. So a model mm -hmm. of knowledge and people would sit there and code it. And they were using publicly available sources like newspapers and magazines. So they were capturing the cultural knowledge essentially, but they did have a knowledge. Um, some of their applications were trying to be unbiased so or different bias. Is that a terrorism database? Mm -hmm. um, for instance, that would try to, um, you'd feed it information and would try to figure out and make inferences about what was a terrorist activity, who was a terrorist, who was likely to be, et cetera. Um, there's, they were also had um, decision-making systems. Um, one of the intermediate disruptive things before we get to generalized artificial intelligence, one of the things that's going to disrupt us, right now everyone thinks it's data science and these predictive values. But go and look for the terms decision science and decision intelligence. Um, those are going to be the profound things that machine learning does for us. Um, Google has uh, a director of um, decision intelligence who blows my mind every week <laughs> because she takes data science and statistics machine learning, but then she doesn't say, so she put out a problem a few weeks ago and says, okay. Um, and I can't remember what the specific problem was, but she's like, would you, how would you use the data to make this decision? And everyone fell for the trap and then made a database decision. And she's like, that's not decision science. Decision science starts with a decision maker who already has a default decision based on their own experience. But then decision science says, use data and, and analyze it to produce actionable information that I could use to change my mind away from the default decision. Whereas the st statistician says, give me all the data and I will find the significantly significant or the statistically significant choice and I will have a hypothesis I test. And they're like, no. In decision science, you have a default, and it does not have to be rational, but then the data decides if you're going to move off default as opposed to proving the null hypothesis. And man, this is powerful because it makes humans better decision makers. So It makes committees better decision makers. There's a body of literature uh, known as framing that talks about that, and basically that information goes through your own cognitive frame and then you you make of it what you will so I, I think that's very similar so then how you um frame that data that you enter into these uh, machine learning algorithms or uh, computers will will and and they've noticed that when they do it with loan applications and all of a sudden people that aren't um uh, minorities or or uh uh aren't given loans because the machine machine learning act, act algorithm says that they're not worthy because they weren't fed enough worthy ones, right? And that's where I was going because Moro mentioned the word bias. <laughs> and decision science is really powerful or decision intelligence because it can take 
your unconscious bias and help you reduce them without going through those mindfulness techniques that we talk about, it becomes another source of data that can eliminate or reduce mm. your own personal bias. And this is why I specifically bring up committees are really bad at decisions, but I think decision science as um, its next disruptive thing will actually be able to harness um, the collective intelligence of a committee or a group and allow mm. them to eliminate the bias that causes them to make bad decisions. And so suddenly we'll, we'll get away from this false dichotomy of strong leader versus um, a democratic process or fair process that they can actually be the same thing. And that would be a profound and disruptive force in the world, allowing us to collaborate and cooperate, to be different, yet mm -hmm. still work toward collective goals. Oh, so um, if you had a computer, if, so if you had... A bunch of so I'm doing my master's thesis on indigenous consultation, which is just a hot mess. Uh, so then, if you had uh, these committees that um, got together to talk about, say, a pipeline going from Alberta to BC, they could all enter their data, and then a computer could come in and possibly offer to them a common ground. Um, and not necessarily a computer, but it could also be um, intelligence analysts who are using data. Right, to, but computer-aided yeah, mediation. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Um, and hmm. uh, this really excites me in the world of cybersecurity. Um, those who know me know that over the last six months, I've suddenly got this thing that threat intelligence will evolve into cyber intelligence, which will be consumed or subsumed into business intelligence. And it's because we need... Um, decision science driving both of those. They have so many commonalities. Um, and I think that it's going to make cybersecurity decision-making so much better. Um, and But I, I, I mean, other than Google's director of decision intelligence and a few others, most people are talking machine learning and data science and not talking about decision science. I put some links in the show notes if you're interested in this. I think it is like, out of everything we talked about, it is literally the hottest topic. So Hot it may in that no one else is doing it. So you're just going to be all excited, going, "Oh, I'm the only <laughs> one." It may uh, reduce the um, supplication to professionals, then, because if you think about if you can get a, uh, and I, I've thought this forever, is that no matter uh, this, if you can get two people to think at the same time and the power of two brains is is worth more than the power of any one brain uh and then if you could get three brains it would be even more powerful than two brains so if you can get computers to knit them together uh somehow uh then perhaps you could have a committee of eight people uh commiserate on just about yep. any topic and get a a result that is better than what could come from any one person Right, so then uh, you got uh, Cassie Kozakov. Yep. Uh, uh, you could get three or four people that could get together and be on uh, uh, decision intelligence, and they'd be better than the one Cassie Kozakov. Right. It would be even better if Cassie Kozakov was on that committee, but perhaps you don't necessarily have um, a 
uh, I, I don't even know what the the giving up to professionals like expert. It's an expert opinion. I'm not even going to assail that. So yeah, it's it's kind of interesting. Uh, we're actually broaching onto this topic because uh, I remember several years ago uh, there was an article, uh, and it had to do with so like criminology and experts. So the idea that you know experts have the experience, they know what they're talking about. So they are the authority in leading data. So they did an experiment. They uh, handed a bunch of cold case files and they actually they actually gathered a group of people, people from different walks of life, different experiences, not necessarily experts at, you know, uh, looking at evidence or anything like that. But what was really, really interesting was the fact that, you know, uh, they were able to actually find new evidence or new things that the, mm. the experts had missed. Because the problem with the experts are they already know that they're experts. They have a certain yeah. trained regiment and a bias. So doing this crowd uh, investigation eliminated those walls. So, you know, like uh, a barber, for example, saying, did you guys actually look at this? And, uh, you know, the, the phone number, mm. yeah, I think it's tied. I think it's from this region. And the guys completely missed it. The experts missed yeah. it. So I think this is really a great application for those types of instances i mean could you imagine a, 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 a you know like an engine that you know has consumed so much you know uh data uh that you know it it, it can say oh you you know your biases miss this but uh, i think you're missing you're missing a nuance is that i think that that you wouldn't have the machine making the decision. Oh no! Yeah, since since right. the you're since right. the people that are coding the information and feeding it to the machine, and the machine is just processing it and saying, yeah. Yeah. "Here are the inferences I've gathered from the data True. that you've given." So then, if you have a group of people working on a problem, feeding it information, yeah, it in a sense doesn't matter if they disagree because the computer is no. going to try and find the common ground, yeah, and perhaps get to a a mutually agreeable and human agreeable situation. It's just aided by the computers. That's true. Right? But you know, at the same time, it's breaking down any one person's bias, right? Absolutely. That so that, 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 and that's, and that's powerful in itself as Michael had mentioned. So, but, um, so I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to loop this back. Okay. Um, at the beginning, I, I talked about the concept of futurism and futures thinking being not about predicting the future, but about reducing uncertainty and um, making us more resilient um, in the face of that uncertainty. Um, there's this book called Where Good Ideas Come From, and the author argues mm. that the best ideas aren't... Uh, the, the notion of a eureka moment where a single genius goes, I've had a breakthrough, doesn't exist. That all of those great um, discoveries actually come through discourse where people compare all of their bad ideas. This didn't work. I tried it. Oh, I tried this and it didn't work. And then they come to discover through discourse, conversation, and comparing all the failed ideas, the one breakthrough idea. And decision science, to me, because it reduces bias and uncertainty, seems to be that driving force where a group of people can harness their collective ideas, not the good ones, the mm -hmm. bad ones mm -hmm. that the system will then highlight and go and drive them toward the good idea. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Very cool. Very cool. 
Okay, well, with that, I'm going to say we're like about 15 minutes over from where we normally target to. So right. uh, I think we should wrap this up. I, you know, I, I want to say, Michael, any last words on the AI machine learning? That topic? was my last word. Okay, that was. Okay, cool, cool. I guess with that, then, uh, you know, let, let's start the wrap up. I want to thank our good friend and our guest today, Warren. Warren, it's been it a pleasure to see you as always. And, uh, you know, thank you for your insights. Definitely appreciate you coming on to this uh, live stream. I want to shout out to all the peeps that, uh, you know, put in questions and, you know, kept it lively in the uh, crowd. Definitely appreciate you as always. It's always good to see you guys. And, uh, you know, hopefully we'll see you in the next uh, next live stream. And for those of you that love the video, please hit the like button, smash that subscribe button if you haven't subscribed and hit the bell button to get notified of our next live stream. All right.